Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss and get down on today in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's world in sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, wassalam, alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom, namaste. Wendell's world in sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Pique, pasa, mi amigos. Mi amo Wendell Wallace. Wendell's world in sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Special dedication for those who have been giving me those five-star reviews. Special dedication for those who have been subscribing, downloading, rating, reviewing. Thank you so much. Go to any place you listen to your favorite podcast, go over to Wendell's World in Sports, W-E-N-D-E-L-L-S, World in Sports, and do me a favor, go ahead and download, rate, subscribe, and review. And most importantly, when you do that, then enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking podcast that you can listen to. What is happening, man? You doing good? You know I want to ask you this question, right? You doing good? You doing everything that you need to do to make this world a better place to be? Unity, harmony, understanding, love, Peace, listening, learning, shut up, listen, learn, respect those who might not look like you, those who have a different skin tone than you, those of a different race than you, those of a different gender than you, those who have a different financial background, those from a different side of the track, those who might worship another God, those who might love another person than yourself. Please listen, learn, educate so we can have peace, unity, love, harmony, understanding, everything based on who you are as a human being, not by the color of your skin, not by your gender, not by anything else. Too late for my generation. We're too selfish. We're too ignorant. or We're too uh, ingrained in those things to have the utopian society that we deserve. But for the sake of our children and their children and their children and their children, do exactly what you need to do to make this world a better place to be moving forward. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Man, a lot of stuff to be getting into today, man. Let's just go into it, man. Let's just dive right into it. Let me run up. Let me run this up the flagpole and see what's see who salutes. Week four of the NFL is in the books. Now we're going to be talking about week five coming up. We're talking about the only unbeaten team remaining, the Arizona. Arizona Cardinals still glowing after the best win of the season so far last uh, weekend against the Los Angeles Rams, number one with a bullet. So if you take a look at the standings so far, competitive divisions through the uh, first four weeks, I like some of the stuff that's going down so far. And again, this is not written in concrete. This is not written in terms of this is the way it's going to be. We still have 13 more games, 13 more games left to go. So I could just kind of say that we're somewhat close to the uh, quarter point of the season. But you take a look at the AFC North. It has three teams tied for first place for the division, and one of them is not the Pittsburgh Steelers. Cleveland, Baltimore, Cincinnati, they're 3-1. and one. Pittsburgh is 1-3. Let's go ahead and you take a look at the AFC West. Three teams tied for first place. One of them is not 
the professional team from Pittsburgh. When you're speaking about the Los Angeles Chargers, the Las Vegas Raiders, the Denver Broncos, they're all three and one. Kansas City, they are two and two, but they're coming on strong with the bullet. The worst division so far in football this season, the AFC South, might mirror the mediocre play that was the NFC East from last season. Tennessee is leading the division with a record of two and two. Everyone else is three and one. And with the exception of Indianapolis, who I think is going to get better as the season goes on, the rest of that division, speaking of Jacksonville and Houston, are putrid. They're dysfunctional. They're going nowhere. So, in fact, Houston and Jacksonville, what would you say? Rankings 31 32, two of the worst teams so far this season. So, that's the. Uh, that's my thoughts and opinions about that. And then you take a look at the AFC and the NFC East. Could have striking similarities this season in the fact that, you know what? You know what? I want to throw not only the not, not only the uh, NFC East and the AFC East. I'm also going to throw in the uh, NFC Central. When you're talking about the makeup of that division, when you're talking about one elite dominant team in the division, followed by also Rand's disappointments and rebuilding squads, right? I mean, let's take a look at it. In the AFC East, you have Buffalo. They've won three games in a row. They look to be showing dominance in the division after a slow start after losing the season opener against the um, Pittsburgh Steelers and then looking mediocre in the next game. They went ahead and played my Washington Snyder skins and Josh Allen started to resemble the quarterback that he was in 2020 when he was clearly one of the top three or four quarterbacks in the league. They rebounded that way and put up some really good offensive numbers and that seemed to kind of gain momentum for them for their next game albeit against one of the more sorrier teams so far this season in the Houston Texans but you know put up a 40 and Allen again was looking strong so it seems like Buffalo was starting to slowly but surely come around thanks to the (laughs) thanks to the jolt of confidence and getting the uh things back on the rails by playing my Washington Snyder skin. So Buffalo seems to be the dominant team of that division. And then when you're speaking about New England, when you're speaking about Miami, when you're speaking about the New York Jets, you're speaking about rebuilding, disappointing, and perennially losing. The New England Patriots, I mean, they defensively they look really good against the Tom, Tampa Tom Buccaneers the other uh, on Sunday night, but you're starting a rookie quarterback. And a rookie quarterback who is being nothing more than a game manager, which I think Mac Jones has done well. I think the play of Mac Jones has justified the reason for New England letting go of Cam Newton. But if you're going to be talking about New England trying to get back to the space and place they were before in terms of being Super Bowl contenders, I'm not even talking about year after year and being the leading team to be Super Bowl contenders. But if you're just looking for New England this season to uh, be contenders and making the playoffs as such, I think that uh, those expectations shouldn't be there. So I think as of right now with New England, they are rebuilding. So if you take a look at the AFC East, Buffalo dominant, New England rebuilding, disappointing, had been Miami. That was a team that was supposed to uh, really be competing for a playoff spot, but because of poor quarterback play, I'll get into that a little bit later, and the lack of offensive weapons at the wide receiver in the running back position, Miami, I don't know exactly what they're going to do. They've lost their third game in a row, or they've, they're now 1-3, and three, and they're going to be playing Tampa Bay this upcoming Sunday. Man, I don't know what's going to be happening as they push out Jacoby Brissett for another started quarterback because Tua Tungavailoa, who was, wasn't was setting the world on fire before he got injured, is out again with a rib injury. So a disappointing team in the AFC East has been Miami, and then you have 
the perennial losing of the New York Jets, even though they got a surprise victory over 20, over Tennessee in overtime this past weekend. They're still the New York Jets, and they're still not going to be competing for the AFC title or the AFC division anytime soon. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us speaking about some of these divisions so far through four weeks in the NFL, speaking about some of the similarities that they have when you're speaking about the AFC East, when you're speaking about the NFC East, when you're speaking about the NFC Central, one dominant team, one rebuilding team, one disappointing team, and then one team that's not really going to be doing anything. So I spoke about the AFC East moving over to the NFC East, the Dallas Cowboys, especially on defense, establishing themselves early as a not just division champion, but also a team that could possibly, if all the chips fall correctly, a conference champion so far. The return of the Zeke has been um, enthusiasm, enthusiasm for the team. Enthusiasm, is that even a fucking word? Well, whatever, he's been a big jolt of energy for the squad. Dak Prescott has shown no real ill rust from the injury that he had the last season that knocked him out. You're speaking about the offensive line for Dallas, which is only going to get better, uh, starting to get back to their dominating ways. So on offense, it looks like the Cowboys have one of the more balanced and elite offensive offenses in the league. So that's going to bode well when you're speaking about their dominance in the NFC East division. So they're the team that's going to be the team to beat. And then you have... A squad like the Washington, my Washington Snyderskins, which has been disappointing, especially on defense. You have a team that's rebuilding in the Philadelphia Eagles when you have Jalen Hurts and you have Devonta Smith and you have all those young bucks at the wide receiver, quarterback, and running back position. And then you have a team with the exception for a short little stretch last season, the New York Giants, who have been losing. And when you have Daniel Jones at your quarterback and you really expect them to be competing with the Dallas Cowboys, we will uh, get that answer when they play them this uh, this Sunday. So that's the NFC East. And as I mentioned before, the NFC Central is the last division. If you want to draw the similarity between one dominant team, one rebuilding team, one perennial losing, and one disappointing team, the NFC Central. Green Bay remains the class of the division so far without any real evidence of competition for their division title. So you have a team that's been disappointing like Minnesota. I mean, Mike Zimmer. I don't know. Mike Zimmer coaching forward, coaching future with the uh, Minnesota Vikings, the way things are going right now. I don't know. They've been disappointing. Chicago's been rebuilding. And as always, Detroit's been awful. So if you take a look at that, you take a look at those three divisions, you see those similarities. One great team, three other teams that really won't be competing. Looks like they won't be competing so far the way things are going this season. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just looking at some of these divisions here. The NFC West remains one of the strongest and more competitive divisions in the league. The Arizona Cardinals, who many people, when you were speaking about the preseason power rankings, and you had the LA Rams as one of the elite teams, and you had teams like the San Francisco 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks somewhere between number 8 and number 12 in the uh, power rankings, and then about 17 or 18, you had the Arizona Cardinals. Well, so far this season through four games, you have Arizona flipping the script, and they're number one in most of the power rankings, remaining the lone undefeated team so far through four games. You still have the Rams, despite losing to Arizona. They still have to be considered so far one of the elite teams in the National Football League. Seattle and uh, 
Seattle and um, San Francisco, because of quarterback injuries, I, I don't know where you're going to put them. After the uh, game on Thursday night, I mean, we're speaking about Seattle's, you know, Russell Wilson, quarterback Russell Wilson. He's going to be out somewhere between six to eight weeks with a uh, finger injury. And then you have Trey Lance that's going to be starting for San Francisco this upcoming Sunday because Jimmy Garoppolo got injured again. So long term, I don't know exactly how Seattle's going to fare with Geno Smith as the starting quarterback. And I don't know with Garoppolo and Trey Lance, this situation, even, you know, even if Garoppolo returns, at the starting quarterback on a consistent basis. I don't know where San Francisco is going to be in terms of how good they're going to be to challenge for the Western division in uh, in the NFC. So those are some of the things that I'm looking at. Those are some of the things that are interesting. As I mentioned before, you know, the uh, AFC Central or the AFC North and the AFC West, where you have the teams that have been perennial powers through a uh, Good stretch in the past, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Kansas City football team mired in the last place so far through four games. The Pittsburgh, I would be concerned. Kansas City, not so much. Even with the poorest defense of Kansas City, I just think that uh, once they get over that Super Bowl stupor and Patrick Mahomes starts doing his thing, he showed great evidence of that against Philadelphia this past Sunday. I think that uh, everything will be fine, especially now with the game against Baltimore. We saw, as far as being like elite of being true, you know, conference uh, contenders that the Denver Broncos are frauds. At least they showed for uh, one week. So I think that when everything is all said and done, if uh, if everything goes back to the medium, that Kansas City will be right there, along with the uh, Ken- along with the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. They look pretty good. Raiders and the Broncos. I don't know. Even though I think that uh, last place is going to be situated nicely for the Broncos and. I think that with the Raiders, of course, it all depends on their defense. Let's see how they operate and vie for a playoff spot moving forward after week five. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So some Thursday night football. The LA Rams over the Seattle Seahawks 26-17. Rams rebounded after losing to Arizona in division in which Winning on the road a Thursday night in Seattle. Impressive. Very nice. Matthew Stafford went uh, 25 of 37, 365 yards, one touchdown. He was great. Targeted Robert Woods a lot, Cooper Cup a lot. It was nice to see actually Robert Woods get the majority of the targets. I think he got 12 targets. He caught eight passes. And uh, normally Stafford mostly throwing to a Cooper Cup. But I guess the way that the uh, defense was playing that Woods was going to be the recipient of most of the uh, targets from Matthew Stafford, and he did a good job hooking up with him. So after being down at halftime, the Rams outscored Seattle 23-10 to in the second half for the victory. The Rams finished with 476 yards of offense, the most they've had in their last 20 games since Week 3 versus Buffalo in 2020 when they had 478. It's also their third highest offensive game in the past two years since week five at Seattle in 2019 when they posted 477 yards so again it is the acquisition of Matthew Stafford where I think we're going to be seeing those type of numbers I mean we're not probably going to be seeing LA on a consistent basis reach those numbers when we but when you're speaking about the upgrade that the Rams have a quarterback now with Matthew Stafford instead of Jared Goff in the playbook that could really be expanded and open up for a quarterback like Matthew Stafford is only going to be making those numbers in terms of total offense 476 look like it's going to be maybe maybe not routine but getting close to that number 
with the squad that they have offensively and the quarterback they have right now for the Rams, it's going to be very possible that they're going to be coming close to those numbers, total yardage on a consistent basis. Now, spoke about the Rams. What's up with um, Seattle? Are they, as we say, are there problems brewing in Seattle? Huh? Huh? You like that? Huh? Brewing Seattle? Yeah. Russell Wilson injured his middle finger in what he might be giving to the organization if things don't turn around. He was knocked out of the game after entering his uh, middle finger on his throwing hand in the third quarter. He returned for one series, but was replaced by Geno Smith. At that time, the Rams were leading 16-7. to Smith went 10 for 17 for 131 yards. TD passed, but threw a game-ending ceiling interception. So, you know, you get the good with the bad. It's kind of hard to evaluate uh, Smith and the position that he was put in. But, I mean, the bigger picture now, Seattle is 2-3. and three. They've lost three of their last four. And this, what's going to happen with Russell Wilson this offseason if things don't turn around? Even using the excuse of like, hey, look, man, if, let's just say, for instance, for some reason, Russell Wilson misses eight weeks. All right, let's just go, you know, play devil's advocate here. Let me just throw out the number eight weeks. He's scheduled to be out six to eight weeks. The sing- finger doesn't heal correctly, whatever. So he comes back eight weeks later. I mean, we could be looking at a Seattle team by that time, which could be somewhere between, I don't know, what, five and eight, something like that, four and nine. And if that happens, what's going to be the attitude? What's going to be the outlook for Russell Wilson moving forward? Who, if you remember, lost uh, this past offseason. I know Aaron Rodgers told most of the uh, offseason news in the NFL with his trade demands and such. And coming in second place is Deshaun Watson with all of his nonsense. But for those who might have forgotten, Russell Wilson was also a guy who was sitting up there throwing out hints that he wants to be traded. Well, not so. Well, Aaron Rodgers and. Deshaun Watson were throwing out hits, hints. They were telling people, get me the hell out of here. Russell Wilson was kind of going about it in a in a roundabout way. I mean, the man appeared on the Dan Patrick show in the offseason and made us discontent with the current state of the Seattle Seahawks organization, obvious. Um, Wilson's agent declared that, you know, while Russ doesn't want to trade, he would accept a trade to a team like the Raiders or the Cowboys, the Saints or the Chicago Bears. So it's one of those where it's like, no, no, no. Hey, man, Russell Wilson didn't say that he wanted to be traded. What are you talking about? But if he was, he would prefer the Raiders, the Cowboys, Saints, and Bucks. <laughs> or Bears. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, you know, in a situation like this, what are we going to be doing with Russell Wilson? What's going to be happening with Russell Wilson if the Seattle Seahawks flame out? Especially after week one where... You know, they put in that new offensive coordinator and Wilson was singing his praises and this is great and this is wonderful. Well, if this goes south and it seems to be going south right now, again, we're only four games, five games in. So there's a lot of time for things to be rectified. But uh, if Wilson's not going to be playing for a certain amount of time and they come back, is that going to be one of the reasons if Seattle misses the playoffs that A, it would, you know, I guess somehow, some way, give an excuse for the organization to go to Russell Wilson and say, hey, before you start going on any more sports talk podcasts or before you start going on any more uh, sports talk shows and start talking about, yeah, that offensive line been getting beat up. You know, they need to get a little bit better. We need to improve on this, that, and the other. And, you know, now they're not letting me cook. They're not letting me cook. You know, I need to be Bobby Flayed. I need to uh, go in there and uh, do my thing. I need to be Mark Murphy'd. I need to be uh, Alex Gordon Shelley'd. Go in there and let me cook. They ain't letting me cook. They're making me be a sous chef. So, you know, it's a situation where if it comes down to possibly, hey, look, you know what? And I hate to bring this up. And I don't think as of right now, I think it's really too early 
as a talking point to bring this up when you're speaking about the Seattle Seahawks. Again, five games in in the season where you have 12 more games to go. And how do you even evaluate the season if Russell Wilson is going to be missing a significant amount of time? But if the Seahawks flame out again and there still seems to be a difference of opinion on how the offense should be run between Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll, and it comes down to a situation where, like, look, man, I don't think those two are going to be able to coexist anymore. There hasn't been any evidence of that's going to be happening, but when I say it looks like we're in a situation where they can't coexist any, anymore, i.e. Wilson's going to come out with another offseason of, well, you know, I don't want to be traded, but if I did, here are the teams I'd love to be traded to. I mean, is it time for us to have this either-or? Which but button are we going to push? Are we going to push the Pete Carroll is no longer our coach here, or are we going to push the Russell Wilson is no longer our quarterback here? If we have to choose one or the other, you take a look at Carroll. Again, I'm not saying that we should have the Pete Carroll need to be fired discussion. I'm not saying that. I'm just projecting if things don't turn around. And again, we saw the discontent that Russell Wilson had with the offense last season. Again, who knows what's going to be happening because of the injury to Russell Wilson if he's going to be out a month and a half to two months. We don't know. But if they need to cross that bridge in terms of either Russell stays or Coach Carroll stays, what is it going to be? Because you take a look at Pete Carroll, who, by the way, is 70 years old already. Ever since losing the opportunity to become back-to-back champions, Super Bowl champions, when he made that decision to uh, throw the ball instead of handing it off to uh, Marshawn Lynch, and there's been all types of theories and conspiracies why Carroll went ahead and did that. But, uh, you know, that's, that's for them to discuss. But uh, ever since losing that game and missing the opportunity to become back-to-back champions, Seattle's overall playoff record has been 3-5. and five. Now, they've been to the playoffs every season since losing that championship to New England, with the exception being... 2019 where I think they finished seven, uh, 9-7 to seven. so it's not a situation look they win on a, on a consistent basis anywhere between 10-11-12 games but I just think in a situation where you have yourself a franchise quarterback who even at the age of 32 years old Russell Wilson is speaking about how he's going to try to do everything humanly possible he can to play until he's 45 years old being inspired by the work of Tom Brady that he's going to uh try to do some things, if he can stay a relevant quarterback for at least another seven, eight years, and when I say relevant, I mean somewhere in the top five, top six in the league, and it comes down between Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, wouldn't you have to go with Russell Wilson? Wouldn't you think? I mean, maybe it is time for a change. Again, depending upon what happens. That's going to be a discussion point for another day if, if something like that comes about in terms of Seattle having a disappointing season through five games. I'm not going to uh, put in concrete that Seattle is going to be going down that road. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So taking a look at the Sunday schedule for the NFL, some of the early games, you've got the New York Jets at 1-3 in London against the Atlanta Falcons, 1-3. God, that's got to be a game that sucks in terms of, in terms of, uh, Excuse me. The terms of those uh, teams going over there to play, because you have to, you know, make so many special accommodations in the food and the atmosphere and the environment, and 
even if those guys have been in the league for a while, I mean, this is for some of them a, a brand new deal. And you're speaking about the Jets going over there with a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach who hasn't been in this situation before. So it's got to be like a real pain in the ass, especially for the New York Jets. If you have a squad like Atlanta, you have uh, Matt Ryan, who's been a pro, who's been around for a while. He's done some things, seen some things on the football field. And the NFL, they can get acclimated to the environment a lot better than, say, a team like the New York Jets. But Atlanta has such a horrific, horrific secondary and such. It might be a nice opportunity for Wilson to continue the good play that he had last week against uh, Tennessee, where the Jets won in overtimes 27-24, as I mentioned before. Zach Wilson, the prodigy, the second coming of Joe Namath, the one with Patrick Mahone-type qualities, looked like a real potential franchise quarterback for the first time this past season, uh, this past week against Tennessee. Went 21-34, 297 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, threw a gorgeous pass um, in one of those plays, which made people say, oh, that's the reason why he was drafted number two behind Trevor Lawrence. Oh, that's the reason why people say the nonsense that he's got Patrick Mahomes-type talent. Oh, that's the reason why. Okay. So that's a good sign for the New York Jets if he's going to be able to uh, continue that play in London. We don't know. As I mentioned before, everything is going to be so different. First time around for Zach Wilson. It'll be interesting to see how he responds to something like that. And it might give some evidence in terms of moving forward on his performance in this game in London against the Falcons that might give us more evidence in terms of what type of quarterback Jet fans are going to be getting for the long haul. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening in the NFL this week five. The Atlanta Falcons again snatching defeat from the jaws of victory last week, losing to my Washington Snyderskins 34-30, a game in which in the fourth quarter they led 30-22. to Then they allowed Washington to come back and take the lead. One of the passes that uh, Tyler Haneke made, Taylor Haneke made to um, Terry McLaurin, <laughs> It was just like, jump ball, alley-oop. It was like, why are you telling the R.C. Owens? Just throw it up there, and uh, the um, quarterback or safety or secondary guy for Atlanta was completely lost, and McLaurin was like, thank you, touchdown. It was just like, man, are you kidding me? Matt Ryan went 28 for 43, 283 yards, four touchdowns. Again, if you're an Atlanta Falcon fan, you just want to go ahead and see what you got from Kyle Pitts, the rookie out of Florida, which is supposed to be a game-changing type of uh, receiver, tight end, target down the line. So that's who you should be invested in. That should be really the um, what you should be paying most attention to more than the one-loss record. And Atlanta's not going anywhere this year by evidence of that defense is starting already at 1-3. and three. Green Bay at Cincinnati, both teams at 3-1. and one. Good gauge for Cincinnati to see how good they are in terms of being a 3-1 and one type of team. Remember Carolina? That was the gauge for them to go up against Dallas last week when they were um, undefeated. It was a good gauge for Denver to go up against the Baltimore Ravens when they were 3-0. It would give, give us a little bit of evidence of how good of a team that they are so far this season. Well, the Bengals have beaten Minnesota. They've beaten Pittsburgh, and they've beaten Jacksonville. They did it last Thursday night by the score of only 24-21. Through four games of the season, really don't have any idea how good Cincinnati is. I think that they're better than what they were last season. Joe Burrow has come back and he's played well. Jamar Chase seems to be his favorite target so far. So building that relationship, which they first started when they were teammates at uh, LSU, now taking it over 
to the pros. That can only be a good thing for those guys down the line to establish that uh, franchise quarterback, number one receiver type of a tandem that can lead a team like Cincinnati to um, division titles and conference championships and such. So from that perspective, I think that that's been a good sign for Cincinnati. But then again, going against Green Bay and Burrow going up against Aaron Rodgers, he's going to have to be able to put some points on the board. So we'll see what happens with that. The Bengals are first among the NFL, the first four games in terms of defense, uh, or at least they rank fifth per play. As far as defense is concerned, they're allowing uh, the seven least amount of points per drive in the NFL. So the defense has been there. It'll be interesting. Joe Burrow again going up against Aaron Rodgers so far this season. Burrow's been pretty good or very good, whatever you want to take a look at it. 59 for 89 as far as passing and completions are concerned. 781 yards, seven touchdowns, four interceptions. He struggled in the second, or sorry, he he had a strong second half in the comeback win against Jacksonville, but then again, that's also against Jacksonville. It was one of those, hey, you know, when we're taking a look to see the progression of Joe Burrow as he makes his way on to becoming a true elite franchise quarterback, Evidence shows that, you know, he's on his way because of the comeback victory over Jacksonville. Hold on. Hold on. It was Jacksonville. So let's kind of pump the brakes on that notion. I think Joe Burrow is making great strides, but anything against a team like Jacksonville, yay or nay, I'm not going to, uh, you know, start dancing in the street like Martin the Vandellas or dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie because, you know, of what he did against Jacksonville. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening in the NFL, Jacksonville, excuse me, Green Bay at Cincinnati. The Green Bay Packers starting to take control of the NFC North Division, as I mentioned before, games on a three-game winning streak. Aaron Rodgers, Randall Cobb, connection worked well for the game last week against Pittsburgh, the first four times Rodgers went to Cobb was on third down, and they converted for a first down every single time. He made he had third down conversions of eight yards. Speaking about Randall Cobb, he had third down conversions of uh, eight yards, 12 yards on the drive that ended with Rodgers throwing a four-yard touchdown. Uh, had a four-yard touchdown run for Rodgers, so that was uh, good for them. Cobb's 23-yard Uh, touchdown catch in the second quarter came on third and 10 and then he had a 25 yarder on a third and seven on the opening drive of the second half to uh, really establish the dominance for the day for the Packers in that game against Pittsburgh so moving forward in a team that's already pretty solid in terms of offensive skill positions the relationship between Randall Cobb and Brett and uh, Aaron Rodgers paid dividends Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The winless Detroit Lions over the 1-3 or playing the 1-3 Minnesota Vikings. Hip, hip, hooray. Detroit and Jacksonville, the only team left not to win a game so far this season. That's just a matter of the Lions not being able to capitalize on red zone opportunities. That's it. Detroit became the first team in at least the past 40 years to reach the red zone in each of their first three possessions and failed to score any points, not just touchdowns, any points. Against Chicago, for example, Detroit failed to score on four different red zone drives, which was tied for the most by any team since 2000 in the game, where they entered the uh, red zone and didn't score. 
Dan Campbell and those guys are still gnawing. They're still biting at your kneecaps or your ankles or whatever body part that he was speaking about. But, uh, you know, Jared Goff at the quarterback, I mean, you know, they're just still a, a work in progress with a new coach. 0-4, what else are you going to do? Minnesota coming off an ugly loss against Cleveland, 14-7. Vikings scored on their first offensive possession of the game, didn't score for their next 11. Kurt Cousins, how much money is he making? How much is he being paid in the offense? is continuing as far as its success is concerned on a running back. How much are we paying Kurt Cousins here? Wasn't Kurt Cousins supposed to be the guy that was supposed to be the barometer of how well an offense was going to be doing? Now he's nothing more than having to rely on Dalvin Cook, who's obviously a uh, elite running back, but you know he's been out with a sprained ankle. He's been playing on a sprained ankle, and because of that, the offense has sputtered. Against Cleveland, nine carries, 34 yards. Missed most of the second half before returning for the second to uh, last series of the game. But you're looking at a team that's going to be relying on Dalvin Cook to win football games to be the main star, be the person mainly responsible for the success of the offense. How much are we paying Kirk Cousins? What was the role? What were the responsibilities when the Vikings secured the services of Kirk Cousins a couple of years ago, the contract extension? What was his responsibilities or what was the responsibilities that was needed to be shown for a guy making that amount of money? I don't know. Hamstring, hamstrung in terms of how far the Vikings can go. And they've got themselves, I mean, they've got themselves some some good weapons. A healthy Dalvin Cook is elite. You've got uh, Jefferson, the wide receiver at LSU, who's up and coming fast to becoming one of the more Establish elite receivers in the uh, in the NFL, and you still have Adam Thielen back, Thielen back there, who's a uh, solid receiver. So why uh, Cousins struggles and such, or doesn't live up to the expectations that his contract uh, requires or demands, or you would think? I don't know. I have no idea. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Denver at Pittsburgh, three and one at one and three. Did Baltimore bring Denver back to reality last week? And when I say bring Denver back to reality, I'm speaking about his fans who thought, hey, you know, 3-0 Denver, we might have something here in terms of something special. I don't know. Don't know. It was an easy win for Baltimore. Now, you could take a look and sit there and talk about, well, yeah, you know, Teddy Bridgewater was uh, concussed and Drew Locke came in and he didn't do anything. Well, Baltimore was showing its uh, dominance in terms of who the better team was even before Bridgewater left the game. So if you speak about Denver and you speak about the teams that they beat to get the 3-0, the New York Giants, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the New York Jets, three teams that have a combined 2-10 record, need to pump the brakes just a little bit on, you know, all of a sudden now the Mile High group has started to chant, we want Kansas City, we want Kansas City. So, as I mentioned before, bad situation for Denver, having to rely on the quarterback to uh, win the game. So, against Baltimore, it fell behind 20-7. to Don't care if Teddy Bridgewater didn't get injured or not. Teddy Bridgewater is not that guy. Teddy Bridgewater, as of right now, I think is a better-than-average game-managing quarterback. But, you know, to ask him to uh, put the ball in the air 40 to 45 times and have them come back against a pretty solid Baltimore defense, that in all likelihood, was not going to happen. It definitely wasn't going to happen after Drew Locke came to the game. And this is not me bashing Drew Locke or anything like that. Like any, any quarterback coming 
in cold on a situation like that where he's replacing a quarterback that's been injured, it's tough to uh, ask any quarterback to uh, go ahead and do that, especially a quarterback who is not good enough to be a starting quarterback for that squad. So it was inevitable when Bridgewater went down that the final nail was placed in that coffin for week four in terms of the chances of Denver winning that football game. The Broncos defense did well. Held Lamar Jackson to 28 yards rushing. Ravens as a team to three yards per carry. This is the team in the Ravens that consistently is at the top or near the top of the uh, rushing per game, especially when you have a quarterback like uh, Jackson. But you stopped one thing, but you didn't stop the other. They stopped the run, but they didn't stop the pass. Jackson threw for 316 yards, had a nice, beautiful 49-yard bomb to uh, Hollywood Brown, who decided that he was going to actually hold on to the football. Nice of him to do that. So good bounce-back game for the um, Ravens. We're not speaking about the Ravens, though. We're speaking about the Broncos. So I'm up here yapping away about Lamar Jackson throwing for 16 yards and this, that, and the other. The Denver Broncos defense did well enough. The offense, again, sputtered, but... As I mentioned before, with the quarterback situation, Jerry Judy not playing. He's out with the uh, with an injury for, uh, Bron- for the Broncos at the uh, wide receiver position. Something like this early on in the season was bound to happen. For Pittsburgh, 1-3, lost their third game in a row. 8 out of their last 10 last week after starting last season 11-0. Mentioned them enough, talked about them enough, discussed them enough in terms of what, go- what they're going to do. Defense-wise, they're going to be fine, but offensively, I don't know exactly what you're going to do. Already had the Ben Roethlisberger discussion. I'm going to put that on ice and revisit that a couple of more weeks to see if Ben can turn things around. Mike Tomlin is up there talking about, no, nah, we're fine, we're cool, we're, you know, Ben's all right, he's doing well, we don't need this, that, and the other. All right, all right, you know this shit better than I do, but if he continues to look like he's doing in the next three to four weeks, if you're Pittsburgh, where do you go from there? Again, Pittsburgh doesn't go to the bottom. You know, they don't circle the drain during a season and go and goes down to the uh, toilet. So even if they did, there's there's not a quarterback out there in college where he's going to be the next era parent for Ben Roethlisberger, at least not a franchise quarterback. The quarterback class coming into the 2022 NFL draft is not nearly the same as it was for this past season and some of the other seasons where you had some pretty good quarterbacks doing some things. Don't know where you go if you're Pittsburgh concerning the future and the present future at the quarterback position. If you're really going to be thinking about, you know, you're going to be taking a year to groom Dwayne Haskins to be that guy. All right. Good luck to you on that one. As a fan of the Washington football team and saw Dwayne Haskins multiple times, multiple times, multiple times play the quarterback position. All right. You must have some Houdinis as uh, quarterback coaches to uh, turn that kid's uh, game around from what I saw with him being the starting quarterback for the Washington football team. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about some of the things that are going on in the NFL. When I come back, I'm going to be hitting Miami and Tampa Bay. I'm going to be also talking about New Orleans and Washington. Also going to be talking about some of the later games on this uh, season. As far as uh, for uh, week five, I'm going to be doing that. Talk about the game of the week in the NFL, Buffalo at Kansas City. I'll be doing all of those things right here on the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to, Wendell's World and Sports.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports, mainly the NFL, Week 5. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Tampa Tom Buccaneers, are going to be hosting the Miami Dolphins. Tampa Bay is at 3-1, Miami's at 1-3. and three. Um, The Buccaneers coming off that emotional win over the New England Patriots last uh, Sunday night. Meanwhile, one of the teams that uh, I thought in the AFC had a real chance to do some things. So far, they haven't been able to live up to expectations. The Miami Dolphins sitting there at 1-3. Kind of a tough way, shall we say, to... uh, Try to break a losing streak if you're the Dolphins to go ahead and go up to Central Florida and play the uh, Buccaneers. Don't think there's going to be any type of emotional letdown for um, Tampa Bay when you have Tom Brady at the quarterback. I understand that this was a big weekend for him last weekend, facing his old team, facing his old coach, facing his old players, facing his old owner, all of those things. But uh, we're not speaking about some guy who's running around and doing this for his first rodeo in terms of having an emotional game the week before and then coming back strong. You got to remember, man, I think many people kind of forget this, that the New England Patriots one year went 17-0. They were one victory away from having the greatest season in NFL history, and they lost to the New York Giants. That didn't affect Tom Brady. The New England Patriots in the Super Bowl were beat by Nick Foles in the Philadelphia Eagles. That didn't cause Brady and that organization to fall off. So what I'm saying is there's been multiple times through the 20-something year career of Tom Brady where he could have been, you know, the the prisoner of the letdown game where he comes off an emotional situation and then it lets it let him it affects him the week before. That's not going to be happening, I think, especially when you're playing against a team Miami who is going to be on defense, making it tough for Brady. Don't think he's going to be thrown for 500 yards to five touchdowns, but because of the the ineptitude of Miami's offense, I don't really see any type of um, real problems for Tampa Bay moving forward in this game. And again, as I mentioned before. And I mentioned it before in other podcasts regarding the Miami Dolphins. Hey, man, you know, you need to go ahead and see what you need to do about trying to get to Sean Watson. I understand the legal ramifications. I understand all the hot water that Deshaun Watson is in legal-wise. But come on, man. We're speaking about a guy here who you let him play, and once all of this stuff is passed and once everything is done with the league punishing him and he's free to go, he's free to uh, play the quarterback position, which he's played so well since he's coming to the league from Clemson. Miami needs to do something. I, 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 we're, we're at the point now. We're getting close to the point. After four games. We're four games in, so we still got 13 more games to go. So, again, I don't, I'm not going to be sitting there talking about you need to start punting on the season already. Just the same thing with Pittsburgh. Don't think that you should be looking towards 2022 just yet. As I mentioned before, I mean, you still have 13 more games left to go. But doggone it, man. We, somehow, someway, we've got to start trying to formulate a plan to do the Miami Dolphins to move forward because with this offense, it ain't getting it done. And you're wasting a defense that is playoff bound. That is playoff talented. Uh, that has playoff talent. But when you're currently ranked 31st in scoring and 28th in offensive efficiency, that's not going to get you anywhere. You're Miami. I don't give a damn how great your defense is. I don't care if you're the 2001 Baltimore Ravens on defense. I don't care if you're the 1985 Chicago Bears on defense. I don't care if you have Lawrence Taylor and the 1984 New York Giants on defense or 1986 New York Giants on defense. I don't give a damn what you have when you have Jacoby Brissett being your quarterback because Tua Tungabailoa is injured again. And even before he was uh, injured, 
Uh, earlier this season, he really wasn't setting the world on fire and making a definitive statement about he is the starting quarterback or he is the future franchise quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. When you're faced with that situation, when you're faced with the fact that you have a dearth of talent among the wide receiver and running back position, come on, man. You know, you got to go ahead and you got to make this move. You got to go ahead and get Deshaun Watson. And I'm sorry to say this, but um, we're talking about the NFL here where almost anything can can be excused if you have talent in terms of the transgressions that you have as a human being or some of the transgressions that you've had off the field. Beating up women really doesn't matter in the NFL if you can play. Killing somebody really doesn't matter if you have talent and you can play. Um, domestic violence really doesn't matter if you are a quarterback and you have the talent of Deshaun Watson. Doing kinky, lewd, crude things with women Really doesn't matter if you're a quarterback and you have the talent of Deshaun Watson. Not only will the league kind of look the other way after they go ahead and they do what they need to do to punish him, but don't worry about the fan base. Don't worry about the advertisers. None of that stuff will make any type of difference. It doesn't matter, unfortunately, in the world that we live in. It doesn't matter how many women Deshaun Watson has been kinky with or has uh, done some uh, nefarious things with. If Deshaun Watson can come to Miami and be a top two, top three quarterback in the league and turn Miami into a perennial title contender, believe me, the folks in South Florida, the advertisers who support the Miami Dolphins, the majority of them folks will be right behind Deshaun Watson and the Miami Dolphins if Deshaun Watson can elevate that offense to make it once again to where they're going to be Super Bowl contenders for the next five, six, eight, ten years. So if you're the Miami Dolphins, man, I like I mentioned before, I I I don't think it's time for you to start punting on the twenty twenty one season. But somehow, some way, you gotta start figuring out what you're gonna be doing because doing this situation, doing the same dance with your quarterback has proven so far through four games that that's not been the way to go. Speaking about, you know, against Indianapolis last Sunday, the first eight drives of the game, three points and six first downs. And Indianapolis is far from a dominating defense. So it's going to be more, more of the same in a situation like that. And it's too bad because one of the weaknesses for Tampa Bay and maybe something going down the road as the season moves along that might, might uh, be... Might might have to uh, get more attention for the Buccaneers. It's the fact that their their secondary is really banged up. It's been ravaged. It's been ravaged by injuries so much so that Richard Sherman played significant step, snaps against New England. So, unfortunately, because Miami doesn't have any type of talent from the skill positions, quarterback and off and um, wide receiver wise, it's really not going to be a situation where they can really punish the weakness in the secondary of Tampa Bay. But you know. That's the way it goes when you have a team so inept at the offensive skill positions as the Miami Dolphins not being able to take advantage of the one main weakness for the Buccaneers, especially on defense, that secondary. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. New Orleans at Washington. My Washington Snyder skins. My Washington 2-2 two two skins. My Washington, where the hell is the defense skins? My Washington, so far, defense has been disappointing skins. New Orleans... Had a bad loss at home, losing to the New York Giants 27-24, falling in overtime. Record now is 2-2 two two for the Saints. Still learning what they have with Jameis Winston. 
We don't know what's going on with Jameis Winston. He's been inconsistent so far this season, like the past few seasons of his career, up and down. We don't know what's going to be happening from not just game to game, but quarter to quarter, half to half, snap to snap, possession to possession. Unpredictable and unnerving, I guess, is the best way that you can describe Jameis Winston when you have him as your quarterback. The good, he's thrown eight touchdowns. Of course, five of them came in the opening game of the season against a team in Green Bay, which was playing like it was still in training camp. But he thrown eight touchdowns. Winston had thrown eight touchdowns so far, three in the first four games. He's thrown two interceptions, but he hasn't thrown an interception in three of the first four games. And for a guy who's coming off the season a couple of seasons ago where he threw 30, <laughs> you know, so far through four games, you only have a two. Hey, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's something. That's a glass-half-full type of deal. So game-managing Jameis, I guess you could say, when... You take a look at uh, his passing attempts so far through four games, hasn't thrown 25 passes in any of the first four games, completing 65% of his passes. Yeah, he doesn't have Michael Thomas. He doesn't have Trey Quan Smith. But uh, even with those guys at 100% efficiency, don't think we're going to be seeing Jameis Winston, quote-unquote, opening it up on a consistent basis anytime soon. So what do we have here with Jameis? What do we have here with Sean Payton? What do we have here moving forward with the New Orleans offense? It's Sean Payton trying to teach an old dog new tricks in terms of quarterbacking of Jameis Winston. Maybe this is what Jameis Winston is. Maybe this is a situation where, look, man, he's just going to drive you nuts. He's going to be inconsistent. It doesn't matter how much you try to corral him. It doesn't matter how much you try to teach him. I mean, this is a man who uh, basically was an understudy for Drew Brees for a year. Look good in a couple of preseason games. Look good in a preseason game against Jacksonville which fortified the the decision to have him as a starting quarterback. But, you know, maybe they were like, well, man, this is Sean Payton. And he's got Alvin Kamara as, a, as the uh, running back. And, you know, Sean Payton can go ahead and take any quarterback and make him so much better. Look what he did with Drew Brees, turning him into one of the greatest quarterbacks of our generation and a surefire Hall of Famer when his career was floundering in San Diego and then his medical uh, uh, failure in Miami led to the opportunity for New Orleans to acquire Drew Brees and the rest is history. And you take a look when Drew Brees was, was out, what the Saints were able to do with someone like a Teddy Bridgewater, even on Taysom Hill. So even with the backups, New Orleans was still a formidable uh, team in the NFC and in the NFL because of Sean Payton and what he did and you know the offensive guru and the mind and the genius and the talent of you know Sean Payton as a offensive guy in the NFL. So all those narratives were there for Jameis Winston, a guy number one draft pick, Florida State Heisman Trophy winner, national championship guy. So this guy is a quote unquote winner, but showed awful amounts of maturity, immaturity during his time at Florida State. Then he comes over and gets drafted by Tampa Bay, first couple of years showing promise. And then all of a sudden, Bruce Arians comes in and changes up the whole deal. And he wants to be <clears throat> the guy that's going to be chucking it and risk it, no biscuit and all of those things, which unleashed Jameis throwing for over 5,000 yards, but then 30 plus touchdowns to go along with 30 interceptions led to the ultimate divorce from Tampa Bay, especially when Tom Brady said, you know what, I'll go, I'll join the squad. So moving over to New Orleans was supposed to resurrect his career and turn the corner and turn the page and all those type of things. Maybe <clears throat> after everything is said and done, maybe this is what Jameis is. And if this is what Jameis is, then primarily he's going to be a pretty good backup quarterback. 
I hate to say it. I mean, we found that out with Marcus Mariota. Him and Jameis were one-two, or Jameis was number one. Mariota was uh, the number two draft pick, and it was shown that Marcus Mariota, oops, sorry, overvalued. He's nothing more than a backup. If this is going to be Jameis Winston, if this is going to be something where, hey, look, man, you know, Jameis Winston is going to be a guy when he steps back to pass. It's not all about LASIK surgery and him being able to see things. It's all about this is who he is as a quarterback. He's going to drive you nuts. He's going to be inconsistent. Can you have an inconsistent quarterback or inconsistent play at the quarterback position where the highs are high and the lows are lows in terms of the plays that he makes. When he throws touchdown passes, when he makes plays, he can make them look spectacular. But then when he messes up, he can make those mess ups look spectacular. So it's just a situation where you could fall in love with him immensely in one possession and then want him to be kicked out of the league because of a stupid decision that he makes on the next possession. So if this is going to be the quarterback that James Winston is, hell, he's a backup quarterback and Sean Payton can't save his career. So even with all the stats that I just mentioned, even with the 65% completion percentage, even with the eight touchdowns that he's thrown, three of the four games he's thrown a touchdown pass, even with the only two interceptions through four games which he's thrown and he hasn't thrown an interception in three of the past four games, even with all of those numbers, the New Orleans offense is still 28th overall in the league. So what are we getting at here? Now you might want to say, well, play Taysom Hill, play Taysom Hill. Taysom Hill is not a quarterback. Taysom Hill is a better version of Tim Tebow. If Tim Tebow was a true NFL player, he would be Taysom Hill, a guy who might be able a might be able to to uh, help you in certain positions, but he's not going to be good enough to be a starter at any one position. Taysom Hill is a specialist. You don't play specialists as your starting quarterback again, even with someone of the aptitude offensive wise and turning quarterbacks around like Sean Payton. So now we're just going to have to. Uh, your New Orleans fans, you're just going to have to uh, ride with the Jameis and um, enjoy the ride. Be fearful of the ride. You know, make sure that you, you're, you check your blood pressure. Make sure that, uh, you know, you do all those things because uh, <clears throat> he's, gonna, he's going to uh, drive you batty and he's going to drive you um, insane in both ways, good and bad. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Talked about my Washington football skins Playing two and two, good victory, I guess you could say, over Atlanta. You know, you're going to be playing a bad football team. You go ahead, you take advantage of that. Um, I think the offense of with Tyler, Tyler Haneke is getting better, but, you know, the defense is still the thing to do. And uh, so far, the defense for Washington has not been up the snuff, up the par. Let, let's see if Washington can at least make sure that the New Orleans Saints with Jameis and those fellas and offensively don't get back on track, kind of like the door that they opened for Buffalo to start their rebuilding process to where they are currently. If you remember going into the game against Washington, Buffalo was uh, inefficient, inconsistent on offense, and then they went ahead, played Washington, put up a bunch of points, and got their offense going, and Josh Allen had a great game, and they followed that up the week after that with putting up 40 points against the uh, Houston Texans with Allen having another good game. So if you're New Orleans, at least this is a situation where you might say, hey, you know what, this could be something to where we could start improving and getting to where we need to go, hopefully because of uh, some evidence that showed to the contrary that Washington on a bad day will give that team that type of opportunity. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Moving 
on Philadelphia at Carolina. Both teams coming off losses. Philadelphia lost to Kansas City 42 to 30. Carolina lost to Dallas 36 28. Um, hmm. The Philadelphia Eagles defense. What's going on now? They've been beaten up and bullied. The last two games, if you take a look at those scores, you take a look at the teams that they play when you're speaking about losing to uh, Kansas City 42-30, losing to the Dallas Cowboys 42 or 41-21. to They've allowed 83 points combined, which again, 40 points each against Dallas and KC. They've given up a combined, a combined 850 total yards, 360 yards on the ground. I thought in the NFL, you don't run... You don't uh, run anymore. Everything is pass, pass, pass. Well, not when you're playing the Philadelphia Eagles. 360 yards on the ground, and the um, Cowboys and Kansas City were 15-22 to 22 as far as conversions are concerned on third and fourth down. Against Kansas City, maybe this is an indictment on how bad the defense is for KC, but Jalen Hurts had a very good game. 434 total yards by himself, completed uh, 32 of 48 passes, 387 yards, but... Philadelphia is still a work in progress. Carolina, best-ranked defense going into the game against Dallas, albeit the first three games they played against the New York Jets, Zach Wilson, New Orleans, Jameis Winston, and Houston, Davis Mills. So they came into the defense, number one, well, they got exposed. They showed that, uh, hey, wait a minute now, Dallas, they're not the Jets, they're not New Orleans, and they're not Houston. Dak Prescott is uh, a little bit better than Davis Mills. Dallas had 433 total yards, including 200 and 45 on the ground. Frauds, when we're speaking about Carolina being the best defense, at least it was in that game. Sam Darnold, quarterback for Carolina, first subpar game against uh, the Cowboys for his new organization, 26 of 39, 301 yards. Yeah, that's cool. That's pretty good. Two touchdowns, but two interceptions. What were some of the negatives about Sam Darnold when when he was playing with the New York Jets? his decision-making, and his interception. So against the Cowboys, a defense, just like uh, I mentioned before, not the uh, greatest in the world. So Donald um, had a subpar game. Don't know if that's going to start being a trend. I still think that uh, when you're actually being coached by a guy who actually knows what he's doing on the offensive side of the football, Joe Brady, instead of the clown that he was with in New York, Adam Gaze, then I think that uh, this is going to be a good thing for Darnold moving forward and some of the mistakes and some of the things that uh, he did with the Jets, I don't think it's going to be a consistent basis with the with the Carolina Panthers. What I'm trying to say is, you know, with Jameis Winston, it was a situation where, well, you know, he'll move from Tampa and he'll go to uh, New Orleans and he'll be the understudy to Drew Brees and when it's time to uh, go ahead and um, take the reins from Brees when he retires because of Sean Payton, then we're, we're going to be looking at a brand new Jameis Winston. Well, it looks like Jameis Winston quite possibly, and again, four games into season not going to say anything concrete but through four games Jameis looks like the same old quarterback that he was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and again maybe it's a situation where some of these bad habits are just so ingrained in Winston that he can never be able to uh, let them go this is just who he is as a quarterback 
Don't think after one game with the um, against the uh, Dallas Cowboys and the way Sam Darnold played, I don't think that we're going to be taking a look at the same evaluation and say, yeah, you know what, Darnold's just still that same guy. And it really wasn't Adam Gaze. I mean, this is just, just Sam. This is just who Sam Darnold is. He's going to be making bad decisions. He's going to be throwing interceptions. That's just going to be part of his game. I think moving forward, still so young in his career that Darnold is going to be able to shed that. Maybe not completely, but I think that he can grow much more. I think there's more and more more room for growth as a quarterback for Darnold than there is for Jameis Winston. So for Carolina fans, Carolina Panther fans, I think this was a situation where I don't think Sam Darnold is going to be reverting back to any type of resemblance of the quarterback that he was for the New York Jets. Christian McCaffrey, the running back, for Carolina, the best offensive weapon for the Panthers, and when, when he's healthy, one of the best, if not the best best offensive weapon in the league, says he's definitely um, in position to have a chance to play against the Eagles, missed the Cowboys game because of a hamstring injury the previous week against Houston. Said it before, I think that he is, if not the best, one of the top two or three offensive weapons in the league, and injuries are... The only thing stopping McCaffrey from, I think, having a potential Hall of Fame career. If you take a look in 2019, he became the third player in NFL history to have 1,000 yards rushing and receiving in the same season. But then in 2020, he missed 13 games because he was injured three different times. And now for the 2021 season, he's injured again and missed a game against the Cowboys. So if Christian McCaffrey can never get himself right, I think that the weapon that uh, Carolina has is potent, but how good is it going to be if he's going to be injured all the time? And when you take a look at the lack of offensive skill positions at the, uh, at the, um, for the Carolina Panthers, they're going to be in great need to have Christian McCaffrey, especially with them playing in that uh, division that they have, which includes Tampa Tom and the Buccaneers. Well, yeah, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Tennessee at Jacksonville, Tennessee 2-2. Two and two. In the worst division in football right now, should be able to step right, should be able to right the ship, shall we say, against the most dysfunctional team in the league after four weeks. Is it okay that we say that? Is it okay to mention that? Is it okay to uh, put that moniker on Jacksonville? Derrick Henry has always had a good game against the Jags, and the um, Titans seem to have Jacksonville's number. Won four straight games, seven of the last ten. And the last time that Derrick Henry played against Jacksonville, he looked like Jim Brown against the uh, Dallas Cowboys back in 1963 when he ran for 215 yards and two touchdowns. Speaking about Derrick Henry, not James Brown or Jim Brown. I'm not speaking about those numbers. Last time in December, as I mentioned before, Henry ran 215 yards, two touchdowns against the Jaguars. And there we go. I don't know what else to say. I think Tennessee should be playing with some anger, should be playing with an edge after losing last week to the Jets 27-24 and making Zach Wilson for the first time all season look like a competent quarterback. The defense should be upset about that. And when you take a look at the stat sheet and you see that uh, the Titans lost despite having 85 more total yards, 33 more plays ran, 31st down compared to first to uh, 16 for the Jets and controlled the clock for over 40 minutes. You take a look around and you scratch your head and you say, how the fuck did we lose that football game? I'm angry. I'm mad. I'm ready to do some things. And coming off losing to the New York Jets, they wouldn't dare then turn around and lose to Jacksonville, would they? Again, the most dysfunctional team in the league who have lost 19 straight games despite playing their best game of the season this past Thursday against Cincinnati. The... The... Uh, 
outlook still looks bleak. Still trying to move on from the latest embarrassment. I guess you, what, what would you call what Urban Meyer did going up to uh, Columbus, not coming back with his team after the game Thursday against the um, Bengals, staying in Columbus to quote unquote get grossy his grandkids and then go over to his uh, establishment, eating establishment, and then, you know, doing a little something, something with a female that's not his wife. What would you call that? Grobe gate? Is that what? Uh, we're calling it with that what should be the appropriate title for the latest scandal in Jacksonville <sighs> oh the Jags what are you going to do but I expect Tennessee to go ahead and rectify the situation and uh, get the victory and move ahead in the worst division in football through five weeks Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you can be with us speaking about what's happening in the NFL New England Houston, both teams one and three. New England should be getting the victory because if you take a look at Belichick's record against starting quarterbacks who are rookies, 22 and six, and winning nine out of their last 10. And we're speaking about Houston, who's going to be starting Davis Mills, uh, one of those break glass in case of emergency because Tyrod Taylor got injured. And you saw the performance that Mills had last week against Buffalo, where he went 11 for 21 for 87 yards. And for interceptions, yikes, zoinks, that's not good. Um, Though New England should write the ship. I still like the steady improvement of Mac Jones. The defense showed against Tampa Bay last week that uh, they're, they're a defense that needs to be reckoned with. I don't know because of Jones learning the quarterback position, the limited amount of responsibility that they have for Jones in terms of the offense's concern. Don't think that, uh, you know, as New England is rebuilding. It's a rebuilding year. I'm looking at New England somewhere around, what, what would you say, 17 games? If they finish 9-8, and 10-7, I mean, that would be uh, miraculous, I think. Again, defense is there, offense still a work in progress, especially when you're speaking about Mac Jones as your starting quarterback. But as I also mentioned before, I think those guys made the right decision by letting Cam Newton go in giving the starting quarterback reins to Mac Jones. Now it's just time for him to learn, to get better, to grow uh, Josh McDaniel, one of the better offensive coordinators in the league, is going to be right there. The loss of the running back for New England is going to hurt, still developing some wide receivers. But, um, yeah, against Houston, New England should be able to go ahead and get that victory. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The late game, so very quickly, in the NFL this next weekend or this upcoming weekend. Chicago at Las Vegas. Chicago has finally made the decision to have Justin Fields become their permanent starter at quarterback. Thank you, Jesus. What took you so long? Who finally made that decision? Because for the longest, uh, Matt Nagy was sitting there talking about, no, it's Andy Dalton, no, it's Andy Dalton, no, it's Andy Dalton. So I'm wondering what changed his mind? Watching film, practice, having a meeting with the owner? I'm the, what finally changed his mind to have the decision made to... Um, have Justin Fields become the starting quarterback for the Bears. Okay, so we can go ahead and start that, and we can go ahead and start truly evaluating what you have in Justin Fields to move forward to build this team around Fields uh, for the upcoming future. The Bears are in rebuilding mode officially. They have a really good defense, but their offensive line still stinks. Um, Their running game is good, but one was injured, and uh, like I mentioned before, we're going to see what we have in Justin Fields. The Vegas... 
Raiders coming off Monday night's loss to the Chargers. Sluggish start to the games that you're speaking about the uh, Raiders, man. That's going to be a trend that out here we've been talking about. They scored five points in the first quarter so far this season. They haven't scored on their first possession for the past 10 games. They've fallen behind 14 to nothing twice. They've won both games, but still. And they were down 21 nothing to the Chargers before they fi- finally came back, made it 21-14, and then Herbert made a couple of plays. And it was Sierra later, Sirenara, all of those type of things. So, yeah, getting off quickly is going to have to be a point of emphasis for the uh, Raiders. But um, we'll see how things go. Other late games include the... Cleveland Browns and the Los Angeles Chargers. Justin Herbert, I can't say enough about who he's all about as far as the quarterback concern. And Baker Mayfield, shaky, looking shaky. Did not have a good game, admitted it himself against um, Minnesota. But for the last couple of games, Baker Mayfield has not played well. We'll see what he can do to uh, rectify that, especially the year where he's in line to get a quarterback extension. And we're going to have to find out if him and the organization are going to be moving forward and what price is that going to be for both Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns organization, the the, uh, New York Giants at the Dallas Cowboys, the Cowboys again coming on strong with a good all-around offense, the San Francisco 49ers starting Trey Lance. They're going to be at Arizona. Arizona, as I mentioned before, best game of the season so far, best win of the season so far against the LA Rams. Is that going to be a you know prerequisite to some type of letdown for the Cardinals? We will find out. And then the Sunday night football game just happens to be the game of the week, the Buffalo Bills. It's a rematch of the AFC Championship game between the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. A good gauge so far for both teams to see where they stand early in this early on the season. We'll see the matchup between the Bills defense and Patrick Mahomes to go up against the Bills with Josh Allen at the quarterback against Kansas City's poorest defense. And we'll see against one of the better teams, one of the teams that's supposed to be really challenging the Kansas City football team for that supremacy, the Buffalo Bills in that offense that they've had. Let's see how well Kansas City's defense looks because with the offense that they've had, the past couple of years speaking about Kansas City, the defense doesn't have to be great. The defense doesn't have to be dominating. The defense just has to be sort of what average at best. And they will be able to uh, go ahead and become highly successful as you take a look over the, over the last uh, three years they've been. AFC Championship game, Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl runner-up. So it's all dependent upon how good this Kansas City Chiefs or Kansas City football team's offense is going to be with Mahomes and Tyreek Hill. Those guys had really good connections against Philadelphia the week before going up against the Bill squad who as I mentioned before is putting up uh, some really good numbers through the past two games let's see if they can continue that again gauging so far through five weeks of the season when everything is said and done where they stand moving forward what moves they have to make where they have to improve in what areas it's going to be a good game so week five of the NFL I am looking forward to it. I'm ready to get down with it. It's going to be a very interesting, interesting week in the National Football League. For all of us here at Fillmore West, this is a long awaited privilege and a great pleasure to bring on the number one lady, Miss Aretha. Thank you.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The legendary, the greatest of them all, Aretha Franklin. Speaking about respect, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm speaking about sports. I'm speaking about the NFL. One thing I haven't spoke about, and I'm going to get into it in future podcasts. I'm going to be getting into not just the NBA, because they are the loves of my life, but also probably get into some uh, Major League Baseball in terms of the playoffs have started. We've had some really good games and San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers. That's going to be a good series. The Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros. I think that's still going to be a good series, even though Houston has taken the first two games. Tampa and Boston, that series is tied one-to-one after Boston laid the smackdown and then some on Tampa 14-6. to I can't stand everything Tampa. I think I just, I mean, after what uh, Kevin Kelly, the manager, did, in the uh, World Series with Blake Snell. I was like, you know what? I hate this team. Can't stand this team. Man, I want to go back to some old school baseball, baby. Give me a pitcher who's actually going to be able to give me six, seven, eight innings. Come on, man. I'm not even asking for the complete game anymore. But I digress. This is not something to where I'm going to be criticizing the game. I've done that enough. I've done that before. I've done that on other podcasts. But um, I think that the... uh, Playoffs are uh, going to be exciting in, uh, in in baseball, and I can't wait to uh, go ahead and watch them. The only reason why I haven't really spoken up a lot about baseball is that I just don't watch baseball during the regular season. I just don't. So, you know, on the you know peripheral vision, I know you know about the Yankees. I know about the Red Sox. I know about the major squads. But if you're speaking about some of the other teams, the Brewers and the Braves and such, I really haven't paid too much attention to them. So before I sit up here and start talking about who's going to do what and what my thoughts and feelings are about this, that, and the other concerning MLB, I want to uh, go ahead get immersed in the uh, playoffs and come back and give my thoughts and feelings about it. I understand the Los Angeles Dodgers won 106 games. I understand the San Francisco Giants won 107 games. I know the San Diego Padres were the biggest disappointments in the league. I understand, you know, maybe the, maybe you could even add the New York Yankees as being one of the big, biggest disappointments in the league and the fervor and all the excitement from Boston Red Sox fans after they eliminated the Yankees. I was one of them. But, uh, yeah, I just haven't been really able to uh, sink my teeth into what's going down with uh, MLB. But um, the playoffs, whole new ball game, whole new situation. So, yeah, I'll be speaking about that. Not going to be going as long as I do with football or basketball or my Georgetown Hoyas or something like that. But, you know, it's going to be a situation where I will be watching compromise this weekend because of some of the great games in college football. And then you have the heavyweight uh, championship fight between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, which I'll be speaking about on the final segment of my podcast. But yeah, I will be. I will. I'm not ignoring. I'm not ignoring Major League Baseball. I am watching the games. Of course, some of the games that started a little bit earlier when I was working, so I really didn't have an opportunity to sit down. But for me, I guess maybe three or four innings at the very most during the regular season. If I am going to uh, watch a game, that's about as most as I can take from one setting. But once the playoffs start, I can sit, go ahead and sit there and watch an entire game, even if it's extra innings, depending upon the importance of the game. That uh, game, the wild card game between St. Louis and Los Angeles, that was riveting, riveting stuff, even though this, there wasn't that much scoring. The pitching was fantastic. The play was fantastic. So um, it was a really great game to watch. I'm looking forward for this postseason to have games similar to that. So there you go. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. But now let's get back to a little bit of football. Let's get back to some college football. 
the uh, marquee games this weekend. This weekend, you get the Red River rivalry between number six Oklahoma and number twenty-one Texas. You have number thirteenth ranked Arkansas going up against number seventeen Mississippi. Number four ranked Penn State in what is the game of the weekend in college football going up against number three Iowa. Number nine Michigan will be at Nebraska. Number one Alabama, which was supposed to be really, if you look at it, one of the marquee games of this packed college football Saturday really isn't if you're speaking about the game between them and Texas A&M because Texas A&M preseason was ranked in the top 10 but then again we found out that oops I'm sorry you have to have a quarterback to be able to um, maintain that status as being one of the top 10 teams in college football Texas A&M doesn't they've lost their last two games including losing to Mississippi State so they've fallen out of the uh, top 25 and while their defense is okay there's going to be no way without any type of offense at all to be able to compete with Alabama very balanced offense against Mississippi this past uh, Saturday Bryce Young didn't have to throw the ball all over the yard because Brian Robinson Jr. had like 171 yards rushing Um, Alabama clearly the most talented team in the country along with Georgia. Now, I guess we could be situated and kick back and be anticipating a possible, what, uh, super, super, I wouldn't call it a super fight, but you know, a game of the century part one and duh between Alabama and Georgia. If everything works out the way it's supposed to work out where every people, everybody is assuming that Alabama is going to run through the regular season undefeated. Georgia is going to run through the regular season undefeated. They'll meet in the SEC championship game. And because both of those teams are so clearly better than everybody else, Cincinnati included, that even the loser of that championship game will then go ahead and still both of those teams make the uh, final four for the college football playoffs. So again, we could be looking at an SEC championship game between Alabama and Georgia being the game of the century. Then truly the game of the century would be the rematch for the national championship. There's no way in hell that uh, the committee would go ahead and uh, slide Georgia or the loser of Alabama, Georgia to the number four spot. Don't even know who the number one spot would be if, well, I know it would be Georgia or Alabama, but you know what I'm trying to say as far as, you know, setting it up. If Alabama comes in number one, Georgia number two to the SEC championship game, Alabama beats Georgia, then you would be looking at probably Georgia falling just one spot to number three, Alabama staying at number one. So you could have that one versus four, two versus three matchup to ensure that again, you would have the rematch of the two best teams in the country because doesn't matter Cincinnati making the final four Oklahoma making the final four Penn State Iowa whoever wins that uh, Titanic clash and then moves on and wins the Big Ten you know making the final four you would still want even though you could say make the argument that I mean damn they only played a few weeks before in the championship game for the conference and now you're going to have them play again for the championship game I mean what's that all about the two teams clearly that are better than everybody else head and shoulders so far this season Georgia and Alabama those are the teams that's the two teams that you want to play if things remain the same as far as finding out who is the best team in college football for the 2021 season Wendell's World of Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us for the Red River rivalry, man. I'm interested to see. Is Oklahoma going to be able to put something together? Is Oklahoma still going to be able? We talked about Oklahoma playing up to its competition, playing down to its competition, even though you take a look at the schedule for Oklahoma so far this season. They really haven't, quote-unquote, played up to anybody's expectations or potential or the team, the talent level that they're playing against because every team 
that Oklahoma has played against so far this season, the Oklahoma has been more talented. So it's not a situation where, yeah, against the crappy teams, against the bad teams, you get the non-Power 5 conference teams that they played badly. But if you remember that game they had against this top five ranked team or this really great team that Oklahoma, you know, gave us that glimpse of what they could be on a consistent basis being one of the best teams in college football this season. You remember that for the preseason, Alabama was number one, but many people were prognosticating that Oklahoma, because of the return of Spencer Rattler and the fact that he was going to be at the front for the Heisman Trophy and the defense had gotten a lot better for last season and all of these expectations that Oklahoma had that they were going to be the team that was supposed to be beaten. Alabama had so many questions at the quarterback, a wide receiver, and offensive line, and running back positions that, you know, it was a cute and sexy reason to have Oklahoma as the number one team in the country heading into the season. But clearly stated from the first time that Alabama had offensive and defensive possessions against Miami that, oh yeah, Miami, excuse me, that uh, Miami doesn't have a chance in Alabama while not as potent, not as dangerous, not as formidable as the team from last year, you can rank that Alabama team of 2020 as one of the greatest football teams in the last 10, 15, 20 years. So yeah, they might be, they might not be making that stature, but uh, they're somewhere around that same ballpark. And if Alabama is somewhere in that same ballpark and continue to be somewhere in that same ballpark as they move through this season, yeah, they're going to be ranked number one in the country. They're going to remain as who I think the most dominant team in team sports in North America and they'll continue to uh, move on to the championship game so their game against Texas A&M even though it's going to be on the road I don't know exactly what A&M can do to uh, slow down or stifle that offense so it looks like Alabama in my opinion as we're about 12-15 hours away from this game is going to be in good shape to continue its run toward that number one spot or maintaining that number one spot in that undefeated season Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I'm really interested to see exactly what's happening in the Big Ten with Penn State and Iowa because this is going to be a game, if you take a look, Penn State, I think it would be more advantageous for Penn State to win this game. And the only reason why I say that is because if you're going to be trying to do something, let's say that Oklahoma continues to remain undefeated. Let's say, for instance, that Georgia and Alabama continue to remain undefeated. Then you're speaking about from the Big Ten, because maybe Big Ten, Pac-12, somewhere around there. But let's just concentrate on the uh, Big Ten for just a quick second. You take a look at Penn State. They already have that win against Wisconsin, which from the uh, standpoint of looking at that game now, Wisconsin is falling and falling farther into irrelevancy. So the meaning of beating Wisconsin on the road really doesn't mean that much now as it did when it happened the first week of the season. So if you're speaking about Penn State, if they can go ahead and they can beat Iowa on the road, currently ranked number three in the country. They still have that game against Ohio State. If Ohio State can continue to play well and Penn State can get that victory, then they go ahead, they make it to the Big Ten Championship game and they win that game. So you're speaking about a Penn State squad that is undefeated and you're speaking about having two very impressive victories in the regular season over a top three team in Iowa on the road, then beating Ohio State if Ohio State continues to play well and <clears throat> work the way back up until the top, you know, top 10 in the country, then I don't know how you would deny Penn State the opportunity to get into the f- college football playoffs. And that would make four, if you're speaking about Oklahoma staying undefeated to go along with 
Georgia, Alabama, and uh, and Penn State. And that would really, I guess, put a final nail in the coffin for those who are wanting to see a non-Power 5 school, a.k.a. Cincinnati, get into the uh, playoffs. And you really couldn't make a strong argument. You Maybe you could say if, if Oklahoma continues to play up to the level of competition and then they um, win the championship, maybe, possibly, that's maybe the only avenue that you have. But you really, if you, t- if you take a look at the schedule for Cincinnati, their best victories being Indiana and being against uh, Notre Dame this past week, you can't take a look at that resume for Cincinnati, then compare it to a team like, say, for instance, Penn State, if they go ahead, be undefeated, and with the victories that they would have in the regular season, not to mention the conference championship win that they would have. You can't take a look at a team like Georgia and Alabama, despite the fact that they played in the championship game. One of those teams is coming with a loss. If they finish, speaking of Georgia and Alabama, if they finish the season undefeated, you can't sit there and say, well, Cincinnati deserves a opportunity to play for a championship over those guys because they beat Notre Dame on the road a couple of weeks ago and we don't even know how Notre Dame is going to end the season what happens if they slip up and lose to uh I don't know someone like the Stanford or something like that then you're taking a look at a Cincinnati team whose best victory was against Notre Dame ranked in the top 10 at the time no question about it but when everything is said and done during the regular season they're still sitting there with two losses how in the world are you going to sit there and justify Cincinnati getting into the final four and we haven't even talked about Oregon. Oregon's another team from a Power 5 conference that has a, a big win on their resume, beating Ohio State on the road. Even though they lost to Stanford on the road, what happens if Oregon runs the table and then wins the Pac-12 championship? Yes, the Pac-12 is not the SEC, but yet and still with <clears throat> with the ACC out of play because of Clemson's uh, mediocrity this year, you know they're going to be looking for another squad if you're taking a look at the um, committee, they're going to be taking a look at another conference from the Power Five conference to replace Clemson in the ACC. So you have the SEC taken care of with Alabama and Georgia. You'll probably have the Big Ten taken care of with either Penn State or Iowa. Maybe some way, somehow, Ohio State sneaks in there. I don't know. But so possibly, so you have those three conferences taken care of. The... Um, SEC, the Big Ten, and then, again, if Oklahoma does what they need to do, the Big 12, where's that next Power 5 conference is going to be? If I'm the Pac-12, and I've got a one-loss Oregon team sitting there, conference champions, and we beat Ohio State on the road, and let's say that that was the only loss that Ohio State had. Let's say they go ahead and they beat Penn State, speaking about Ohio State. If they run the table and they're the uh, Big Ten champions. What's the argument going to be for Cincinnati? Because the debate then is going to shift to what's going to be more, who's going to be more deserving to get into that um, playoff? Is it going to be Oregon, a one-loss Oregon, who beat Ohio State on the road? Or is it going to be Ohio State, the Big Ten champion in a much tougher conference if you take a look at that schedule? If they go ahead and they beat Michigan, they go ahead and they beat uh, uh, Penn State, and then they go ahead and beat the... uh, champion from the other division in the pack in the Big Ten championship well then how then can you argue that Ohio State doesn't deserve to be in that championship game and Oregon does and with the only argument for Oregon being well we beat you guys and we beat you guys on the road yeah but you beat us what the second game of the flipping season who's a better team now on the neutral field who do you think will win that game now 
So all of this is swirling around college football, and all of this is uh, great interest. And there's going to be some games that are going to uh, have a tall tale sign in terms of exactly what's going to be happening. Michigan is going to have to continue to keep winning. Oklahoma is going to have to continue to keep winning. A victory over Texas, I think, would go a long way. I think Texas is getting better. Steve Sarkeesian seems to be um, putting a stamp in terms of um, a coach who can uh, live up to at least come close to some of the expectations that um, the uh, Texas fans down there want want the uh, team to be. Quite sure right now that he's a much better fit or he looks a lot better than what uh, – Charlie Strong or Tom Herman was bringing to the table as a head coach, and especially from the offensive standpoint. So this uh, game between Oklahoma and Texas coming up in about, I don't know, eight hours is going to be pretty interesting because I'm recording this at what time is this right here? One forty-one in the morning. Fantastic on a Saturday morning. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Arkansas, Mississippi. <clears throat> Two teams that uh, got blown out. I don't know where we're going with this as far as Arkansas, Mississippi, too. They're not middling, but uh, really not in discussion for the playoff picture. And because both of those teams uh, have played both Alabama or have played Alabama and Clemson, don't know how much of an impact they can make moving forward, especially with the dominance shown by Georgia and Alabama. Spoke about Penn State and Iowa, the ramifications of that. That's going to be a that's going to be a good game. Michigan at Nebraska. Michigan continued the winning strengthening that Nebraska is not as bad as we thought they were when they looked how they looked the opening game against um, Illinois so that's going to be an interesting game let's see if Scott Frost can continue to do some things to try to save his job so college football in full swing college football still working things out college football still questions in the air week uh, six so there's still a lot of time, a lot of football to be played, but the uh, foundation is being set for the arguments to be made about who should be doing what, who should be ranked where, all those good things, all those wonderful things, all those water cooler barbershop conversations that we have concerning college football. It's now starting to percolate. It's now starting to heat up. Now some of these arguments, some of these discussions are starting to gain a little bit more substance as we learn a little bit more about the teams moving on in October with college football to November to December. It's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's uh, going to be extremely, extremely interesting.
last segment of the program, Wendell's World and Sports. So doggone glad that you could be with us. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Remember, tell a friend about this podcast. Remember, tell an enemy about this podcast. Tell everybody about this podcast. Wendell's World and Sports and where you can find it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, download, rate, review, do all them things. It would be much appreciated. So today spoke about what was happening in the NFL. Today spoke about what's happening in college football. Today, to end the program, I'm going to be speaking about the fight that's going to be tonight, the heavyweight championship of the world. Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, part three. Now, I'm not going to go on and I'm not going to be speaking about, oh, how great it would be if, for instance, we could be speaking about Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua and how huge that would be and how monumental that would be and how important it would be for the country of uh, Britain and how important it would be for the uh, sport of boxing moving it up into the lexicon of sports that could be talked about a little bit more often. No, I've already spoke about how boxing kicked itself in the ass without being able to make the mega fight that's now kaput since Anthony Joshua lost to Alexander Usyk. So, We'll go ahead and we'll we'll, uh, revisit the third fight between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury this weekend, this upcoming weekend in Las Vegas. They're going to be fighting for the WBC heavyweight title and the lineal championship Saturday in Vegas. The results of the first two fights, first fight ended in a 12-round draw. Second fight dominated by Fury, seventh round TKO over Deontay Wilder. Going to be the first time each fighter has fought since facing each other sometime around 20 months ago. Storylines going through to the third fight. What's the big flipping deal? What is going to be a situation where this is going to be a little bit more competitive? What's going to be the adjustments that Deontay Wilder is going to make to see what he can do to offset getting his ass whooped from especially around four through seven and turn this into some type of competitive fight for all the hoopla and for all the um, and for all the speaking and all the talk about this upcoming fight. You got to remember, if you watch the uh, second fight, that that was a complete and utter blowout. That Tyson Fury with his size, Tyson Fury with his boxing skills, Tyson Fury with the strategy that he had coming into the fight. And Deontay Wilder is up there talking about, well, I was uh, worn out by the time I got to the ring because of the gear that I was wearing and all this other nonsense and all this other stupidity and bullshit. And that's one of the main reasons why I lost and this time is going to be a lot different. I, I, I just don't see it. I don't see any type of difference. Now, anytime Tyson Fury, who I think is the best heavyweight going right now, is fighting, and he's fighting a top five heavyweight in uh, Deontay Wilder, I think that's always cause for excitement. I think that's always cause for interest. But again, even with the result he had against Alexander Usyk, I would be more, much more um, enthralled and much more happy if Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury were getting it on, even though I really think that um, Fury would beat either one of those guys, Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder with great ease. Um, so I'm still going to look into this fight. I'm still going to uh, watch this fight. I'm still going to be watching in great anticipation. But for Deontay Wilder, I mean, we're speaking about for him to have any type of chance to uh, win this fight, it's going to have to change his style. And basically, can you do that? Can you teach a boxer, basically, who got into the prize fighting, you know, game by necessity not for organic love of the sport or something like that he didn't go through the typical channels he didn't have the journey to become a champion that many of the great fighters have can he now after 43 fights late this boxing age all of a sudden now learn how to uh, basically learn how to fight learn the true sweet science of the sport 
if you take a look at Deontay Wilder as a as a boxer, he's a crude, limited, one-dimensional fighter. Has one dimension, that one dimension being arguably the most powerful right hand in heavyweight history. So that is erased a lot of the uh, limitations that he has as a fighter. But when you're going to be facing someone like a Tyson Fury, who's just as big, just as wide, not intimidated by your size, and more importantly, has felt your power, has felt your punch mentally, psychologically, what did that do to Deontay Wilder? You, you could make the argument that Deontay Wilder lost the second fight after the 12th round in the first fight because everybody thought when he hit uh, Fury with that combination, the old 1-2, and Fury went down like he had just been killed. I think everyone on planet Earth who was watching that fight was going to go under the assumption that that was it, fight's over, Tyson Fury is done. And when he first hit the ground with his eyes rolled in the back of his head, he looked like he was dead. But uh, he rose from the dead, got up, and at the end of the fight, at the end of that round, he was the one that was being the aggressor. Even while Wilder was crudely, amateurishly going out for the knockout, and swinging wild hooks and such, I mean, Fury never lost his composure. As I mentioned before, at the end, it was Fury who was doing the damage to Deontay Wilder. So I'm, I'm thinking if... You know, as we say with the bully, man, when the bully knows that you can't be bullied, what does the bully do? Because that's the only thing that he's going on for the most part. So if the right hand, if that powerful right hand that hit Fury right flush in the spot to knock him down, if not, if that's not going to be able to go ahead and do some uh, damage or, you know, knock him out like he has everybody else, then what else does he have? He's not going to outbox Fury. He's not going to outthink Fury as a boxer because Fury's been doing this for so much longer, has so much more experience as far as being a fighter is concerned, born to fight part of a lineage of fighters in his family. What's Deontay Wilder going to do? Where is he going to uh, go when the right hand is not the equalizer in terms of everything else that he has that is that is vastly in, uh, inferior to what Tyson Fury is putting down as a boxer? So... He's changed, changed, he's, uh, changed trainers. He's now working with Malik Scott, who was uh, KO'd by Wilder back in 2014. So I guess he kind of knows the power and, and, and that such a thing. But uh, as I mentioned before, there, there's some mental scars there from getting beaten by Wilder, by a Fury, that I don't think Wilder has uh, overcome. I remember in an interview he had with the great Kevin Ioli of uh, Yahoo Sports, the boxing fighting guru, Kevin Ioli, I might add. Wilder explained the loss on the suit he wore to the ring being too heavy. Then he accused Mark Breland of spiking his water, the old uh, hand and trainer that he had, and he made an accusation that someone had tampered with Fury's gloves. I mean, what the hell are we talking about here? He's been talking crazy ever since he, ever since he got his head, uh, after, ever since he got his ass kicked in the uh, second fight. So I, I, I don't know exactly what changes are going to be made. For the first time, when they fought that, it was a situation where, man, wait a minute. Wilder's looking at this guy saying, wait a minute, I'm not physically bigger and stronger than this guy. I got a guy who's bigger, taller, whiter than, than I am. So, so where am I going to go? What, what's going to be happening? So 
look, I, for this fight coming in, Wilder is a little bit heavier than he was for the second fight when he weighed in at 231 compared to the first fight when he weighed in at 217. Fury came into the second fight at 271, weighing 271 up from 257. The first time they fought, now he's hovering somewhere around 277, 278 for this fight. So the game plan is going to be the same. As it was in the first, as it was in the second fight. The second fight from the opening belt, Fury ran, sprinted to the center of the ring. Everybody was like, "Are you going to box? Are you going to be the counter puncher?" This and the other. Fury was like, "No, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to establish uh, my strength. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to establish the dictation of the fight. I'm going to go out there and kind of dictate which way we're going to be going." And he ran out to the center of the ring and. Uh, began the fight and controlled the style, the pace, the aggression right there. And, you know, Wilder was backing up. Wilder kept backing up and backing up. He looked hesitant. He was falling for the feints of fury and such. The footwork from Tyson in the first couple of rounds was superb. And I think that kind of flustered Wilder a little bit. And any chance of a competitive fight between those two in the second ended near the end of the third round when Wilder was dropped by an overhand right. About 35 seconds left to go in the round and that was it. He was never the same never the same. He doesn't have the experience of how to recover from something like that. So rounds four through seven, I'll give Wilder credit. I mean, he's got a pretty strong chin. He can take an ass whooping because four, five, six, and seven, those rounds, Fury was beating him up. And Wilder never recovered from the knockdown. He had no plan B. And if plan A isn't working for Deontay, where are we going to go here? He ain't going to get on his toes and start boxing. He ain't going to, he doesn't have the defensive skills. He doesn't have even the experience of when you get hurt on what, he, on what to do to try to survive and try to thrive and get back into the fight. He had none of that. So I, I don't know exactly what else is he going to do. If you saw that fight in the second, uh, the second, and you saw Fury just lean and lean and lean on this guy, putting his entire upper body on the back of the neck of the head and back of the neck of Deontay Wilder. And you're speaking about a guy who, if it's true that he was already fatigued coming into the ring before the fight, maybe it was the anticipation, maybe it was everything that surrounded the fight itself that caused a little bit of fatigue from uh, Wilder. Whatever it was, when you're having 270-something pounds draped all over you for five, six, seven rounds eventually, man, it starts, starts to take its toll. And Fury was even willing to have a point deducted because it was like, I'm, I don't care. First of all, I'm whooping his ass. So you take a point away from me, it really doesn't matter because I'm winning each one of these rounds easily anyway. So what's taking a point away going to do for Deontay Wilder? What's taking a point away going to do for me? Nothing. I'm looking for the knockout, and if I don't win by a knockout, I'm dominating the fight and winning every round anyway. So go ahead and take the take the round, take the um, point away, take a point away from me. I'm doing what I need to do to win this fight by leaning, grabbing, having him in side headlocks whenever he got a chance, even licking his face to taste the blood psychologically, getting in Deontay Wilder's head. So. I think we saw remnants of that. I don't know how well he's recovered from that mentally. I mean, you could you could say all the right things, but who's ever going to be the aggressor? And Wilder's just going to have to go out there and just say, fuck it. I got to be the one who's going to take the fight to him. Wilder is naturally a counter puncher. He's going to have to be the one to say, screw it. You're going to run out into the center in the ring and dictate the style of the fight? No, I don't think so. Because Wilder still has that right hand that can silence anybody in a quick second. And if you take a look at the fights, if you take a look at both the first and the second fight between Wilder and Fury, Fury doesn't move his head. 
Fury is a target for that right hand. He doesn't move his head side to side. No head movement whatsoever. At least we didn't see any evidence of that in the first or second fight. So the right hand is going to be available. And if Wilder can touch Fury with that right hand, it might not knock him out like in terms of the one-punch knockout like he's had with previous other fights, but at least it'll be a situation where it can take some of the steam away from Fury and put the thought in Fury's head that I have to be a little bit more cautious. I have to be a little bit more uh, um, wherewithal about that right hand because that shit hurt and that shit knocked me down. And you get touched with that. I don't give a damn who you are a couple of times. If Wilder's going to hit you flush a couple of times with that, with that punch, it's, uh, it's going to be lights out. Again, we are talking about that right hand being one of the most powerful punches in heavyweight boxing history. So we're going to be interesting. I just don't know. Again, Wilder's coming in a lot. Uh, the, the, the size difference is going to be uh, distinct. Wilder, while coming in heavier, there's still going to be a distinct advantage in that department concerning Tyson Fury. And again, Tyson Fury is a guy who can not only sit there and fight with you, he can also sit there and hold a boxing contest with you. And he's he's intelligent enough and knowledgeable enough to do some of the little things, lean, grab, hold, all those type of things that can give him the advantage. The years and years of fighting that Tyson Fury has that Deontay Wilder doesn't ultimately is going to be one of the keys and I think somewhere at a late stoppage in the ninth or 10th round coming up in an easy victory for Tyson Fury so it's going to be lit down there in Vegas tonight down there on the strip I don't know if they're fighting in T-Mobile or I don't know where they're going to be fighting they're probably going to be fighting in T-Mobile so it'll be interesting to see a if this crowd if they're going to have a sellout and B, what does it mean moving forward in terms of where do we go after this fight is going to be over? Because who else is out there? Usek and Joshua are going to run back the fight that they had uh, earlier last month. So I don't know if there's going to be any difference to that. If Anthony Joshua decides that he's going to try to outbox Usyk and not use his size and power advantage like he didn't do in the first fight between those two, it's not going to be a different um, outcome than it was in the first fight. So what are we looking at here? What mega fights are we looking at here? Are we are are we really going to be able to sell Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder, two guys coming off of losses who are on two fight losing streaks, two two also rans, two has-beens in terms of being competitive contenders for championships. So a fight that should have happened four or five years ago between those two that would have been the biggest in boxing over the past 10, 15 years and down the drain. But no, we're going to do it five or six years later when both of those guys have exhausted all opportunities to become focal points in boxing. We're going to have that fight and people are going to be interested in that. If we're speaking about a fight after this Wilder Fury fight is over, Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder in, you know, in, in 2022, in the spring of 2022, I mean, it's, you know, it's, that, that, that's, that's not going to be interesting. So moving forward after this fight, what does it mean for Tyson Fury? I wouldn't be surprised even after this fight if Tyson Fury retires. What else does he have? What, 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 was he going to fight Alexander Usyk? That's going to be nothing. No one's going to be interested in that outside of uh, this region of the planet. Um, you, you're not going to be able to hold what Alexander Usyk and Tyson Fury is screaming somewhere overseas, screaming one of the European countries. Where are you going to put that? You're not going to put that in Vegas. 
You're not going to put that at Madison Square Garden. You're not going to put that in uh, Jerry World. You're not going to put that in Atlantic City. You're not going to put that anywhere. If you're speaking about a heavyweight fight between Usech and Tyson, and, uh, excuse me, and um, yeah, Tyson Fury. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly <clears throat> what happens as I anticipate again <clears throat> Tyson Fury easily winning this fight. But let's just say Wilder knocks it out. Then we'll do that. We're going to be talking about what fight number four between these two because in all essence, it'll be one win for Tyson Fury, one win for Deontay Wilder, and then one draw. So they're one, one, and one. So truly to find out who is the better of the two fighters, we're going to have to run this back a fourth time. What are we talking about here? The 1950s in the middleweight division? So, eh, no, 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 no. Enjoy this as far as the heavyweights are concerned, because after this, after this fight is over, I can't tell you what the landscape is going to be to attract the non-boxing fan to go ahead and drop $80 to watch a uh, championship fight. So, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A special dedication for that segment was given to fight fan Armando Vasquez. I sure, sure hope you learned something from that dissertation. Ending the podcast with this as you know, I'm a big fan of the Food Network channel. As you know, maybe outside of watching the live events, sporting events on ESPN and watching Frontline on PBS and American Masters on PBS and watching wrestling on the USA Network and um, TNT and when basketball comes around, watching the sports, watching that sport on TNT and ESPN, really just for viewing content, there's no channel I watch more than the Food Network channel. Again, outside of any live sporting events or wrestling shows, I'm uh, all about the Food Network channel. Tuesday prime time is Chop. Wednesday is uh, Guys Grocery Games. Thursday used to be um, Beat Bobby Flay. And then Friday you have uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. I, I can tell you, man, I, I know my uh, Food Network channel. I can sit there and I can watch that all night long. You're speaking about that. But uh, some some sad news from the from the uh, network. Um, Bobby Flay, my man Bobby Flay, beat Bobby Flay, and the Food Network are parting ways after after twenty seven years. Now I haven't been watching the Food Network channel for twenty seven years, but I used to watch Iron Chef America every Wednesday at eight p.m. religiously. I used to watch all the shows containing Bobby Flay, even a couple of the. Uh, reality shows that he was on kind of breaks my heart a little bit 27 years the relationship is over it seems like superstar chef Bobby Flay and Food Network are poised to part ways after a 27 year run that has made the restaurateur and businessman speaking of Flay one of the country's most recognizable culinary figures <sighs> Flay and Food Network have been in negotiations on a new contract for some time his most recent exclusive three year pact with the Discovery owned Cable, uh, cabler expires at the end of the year. Sources close to the situation said that Food Network has ended the negotiations. I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't look good. So the man who brought us such wonderful programming as Beat Bobby Flay, Brunching, Brunch of Bobbies, to the original Grilling and Chilling is over. Is over. I'm not going to be able to see him on Iron Chef America, the world's worst cooks in America, the best thing I ever ate, the next Food Network star. Man, come on, come on. 
Love my guys like Flay and Alex Bornicelli. You don't want to mess with her, man. That, that woman is tough. That woman is tough. Mark Murphy and all those guys. Ah, oh, man, I tell you, I just, I just, just heartbroken. The fact that uh, my man Bobby Flay is going to be uh, leaving the network. I, I absolutely love um, Bobby Flay. Beat Bobby Flay. I just do, man. I could, I could watch that show for like four or five hours straight. And it's only a half an hour, so I could, I could watch like twelve or fourteen straight episodes of Beat Bobby Flay, man. I tell you, because those chumps come on there, and those cooks are no joke. The folks who are going up against him, they are no joke, man. We're talking about some extremely talented uh, chefs who go up against him, and it's kind of like. They get an opportunity to cook their signature dish against Bobby Flay. But Bobby Flay is never going to have the opportunity to cook his signature signature gift, signature gift uh, dish against them. Because if that happens, then he would never lose. So, you know, these folks come in here and they're talking all cocky and they're talking all like, yeah, Bobby, you're going down, this, that, and the other. And Flay's like, oh, yeah, whatever. And um, I just, just love it, man. I just love the programming. So no more Bobby Flay on the Food Network channel. It's a damn shame. It is a damn shame. All right. I'm out of here. It's about 2 in the morning, and I want to get some sleep because there's a lot of college football that I want to be watching starting off 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time between Texas and Oklahoma. Moving on, then we have uh, Maryland and Ohio State's going to be on Fox. So in between that, I'm going to be watching those games. And then, you know, we're going to be taking a look at uh, such uh, programming or going to be taking a look at what Iowa versus Penn State and you got the boxing and so a whole lot of things that I'm going to be doing tomorrow in terms of watching some sports so or later on today watching some sports so want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast remember download download the podcast rate review subscribe do all those good things everybody be safe be good treat everybody the way that you would want to be treated remember do not judge people on the color of their skin do not judge people on who they worship do not judge people on what side of the tracks they're from do not judge people on what uh people what type of people they love it's all about unity it's all about harmony it's all about loving each other for who they are as a human being the moral fiber that they have, who they are as good, loving, respecting people. That's what we need to do to, again, move this country in the right direction. Otis Redding, the greatest of them all. Can't think of anyone better to get us out of here. The greatest, the legend, my hero, everything and all that in a bag of chips sitting on the dock of the bay watching my time roll away. My time is over. Otis, please take over. Peace. Music.
Just to make the dish dark my 